I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio today by Richard Watts, manager of Chrysalis Investments, as well as a member of Jupiter's UK small and mid-cap equity team. Richard, welcome. So why don't you start by reminding us, you know, what is Chrysalis in a nutshell and why invest in it? Chrysalis was born out of our frustration of coming across many very fast-growing, innovative, disruptive companies, typically technology-enabled, mm. that were private businesses that were choosing to stay private for longer and were actually um, choosing to IPO. To access those businesses, we needed a vehicle um, with a you know more of a permanent capital vehicle that allowed us to invest in those private companies. Recently, you know, we, we've the IPO market's dried up a bit. I mean, do you, do you think that problem is getting getting kind of worse? The IPO market has been very slow now for for about six quarters, and so I think that's a cyclical thing. You know, just reflecting, um, yeah. you know, a more difficult market um, backdrop. The decline in the number of IPOs is also a structural thing as well, and that structural dynamic certainly in the UK has been at play for about fifteen years. Mm. If you actually look at America, you know, the number of companies IPOing declining has been going, you know, going back twenty five years. You can measure that by the number of listed companies. You know, and stock markets in simple terms are shrinking everywhere. We do expect to bounce back at some point, typically in you know sharper downturns or difficult market environments. You know, the IPO market remains closed for six or seven quarters. So we right at the upper end of that um, time scale. Well, part of Chrysalis's model is that you invest in companies when they're first private, and then you might hold them after they list on the stock market. Today, the portfolio is predominantly private companies. Isn't yeah, it? the reality is, you know, when you when you speak to founders of um, you know of, of private companies, you know, one of the first questions they will ask of us and other investors is, "What's your time scale? What's your time frame for investing? What will you do with a?" You know, at, at the point of an IPO. In our view, it was never a good message, really, sitting down with people saying that you're a long-term investor, but at the point of IPO, you'll sell out entirely. You've got to be sensible. You see this with private equity businesses when they IPO companies. They typically don't sell out everything. They carry on with a residual position and they can sell it over time. For us, having that flexibility to decide what the right thing to do is at the point of IPO is important. So yeah. do we carry on owning? Uh, do we sell? But I think having the flexibility, I think, is the right thing. We do acknowledge, though, that certainly our shareholders in Chrysalis, you know, recycling capital is very important. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the point of an IPO is that realization event. A good example would be Wise. You know, we we did realize a significant portion of our holding on Wise's IPO, for instance, and that, yeah. you know, that put a lot of capital into Chrysalis. The elephant in the room here is that Chrysalis came out the gates very strongly, so to speak, yeah. and had amazing performance kind of yeah. going to the pandemic really since then there's been a, a slump in the shares as the markets turned against growth stocks you're trading on about a 50 percent discount yeah. to net asset yeah. value what do you think the market's not getting i think people just want to understand that the, the carrying values of the companies that we own you know, are they real it's all very well having a third-party value of value in a company but the asset test is i think you know the realization event if you look across the broader certainly investment trust sector it's a bit mixed right in terms of you know how navs have moved over the last you know 12 to 18 months all i can say for chrysalis is you know our nav is, is basically half from the peak and so that reflects the fact that our assets are later stage and the later stage assets typically um, are valued in reference to listed peers. Earlier stage assets um, are less sensitive to the movements of listed peers because they're just much earlier and the investment thesis is more about you know, the potential. For our portfolio, we keep on saying to people that, look, there's a lot of later stage assets in here. You know, names like Starling Bank, names like Klarna, WeFox, Brandtech, etc. You know, that 
businesses that we think can IPO within the next few years, they are not small companies. You know, they are generating hundred, multiple hundreds of millions of pounds. So well established in the sense of you now generating a lot of revenue and in many cases uh, profitable businesses as well that do lend themselves to an IPO at some point. We think in the next uh, in the next few years that will demonstrate that you know the valuation of these businesses within Chrysalis is fair and reasonable. Has it been a bit of a frustrating period? I mean, do you, do you think perceptions of, of the trust have got a bit too negative? Look, I think so, and I look, but I think it's understandable. The reality is, when you look at Chrysalis in terms of the discount to NAV, it's very similar, or it's consistent with other uh, investment trusts. You know, the private equity investment trusts are, are trading on forty to fifty percent discounts. I don't think it's the fact that people are necessarily singling out. Chrysalis goes back to that earlier point of people are really just trying to understand how these businesses are valued and mm. are those valuations appropriate and fair and reasonable. The focus of the last year or so, picking up that point on liquidity, has been yeah. just ensuring really that our companies are have enough funding and are well funded to actually execute the business plan and drive revenue and drive, hopefully drive towards profitability and create value, keeping the resources um of Chris's on the balance sheet a year or so ago. There were a lot of questions asked about should we do a share buyback, for instance? You know, look look at the discount that we trade on. Should we right. do a share buyback? What's the way to use capital here? That's exactly it. And I think and I think, you know, as we've said in statements that we've released, you know, we've never ruled out a share buyback. We just didn't think at that point in time that it was the most appropriate thing to do. The most important thing to do is to make sure that the companies themselves were well funded to actually trade through. So the interim results this week, uh, you know, contained a reminder of investors that the, the NAV has been cut about another 12% over six months. But you, you and your co-manager, Nick Williamson, you, you struck a much more positive tone about the kind of underlying profitability in the portfolio. Yeah. Can, you, can you discuss yeah. that a bit? Ultimately, you know, that's an external valuer and the valuation committee. So Chris has a valuation committee that reviews all of the external valuations that are prepared for, um, for, um, for Chrysalis. It's an external view of the world and you know, the valuation committee are on record. You know, there is subjectivity here. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's probably more art than it's science. It's not exact science, yeah. Because, uh, because ultimately for our companies, in many cases, there, are, there aren't like identical listed peers. If you look at the Chris's portfolio, and we said um, in those interim results, you know, revenue growth on a weighted average basis. So weighted for our, you know, so the percentage. across the portfolio. Yeah, but, but you know, reflecting, you know, the, the percentage ownership of those companies within Chrysalis. So we're, mm. we're weighting it here, and uh, which I think is the fair way to do it. The rate of revenue growth, you know, is, is 46%. Yes, that's slowed down. Uh, it was 80-odd percent the year before, but, you know, these businesses obviously much bigger because they grew 80% the year before. So, you know, at some point, the revenue growth, it is going to slow. We and other shareholders in these companies have had lots of conversations with, with the founders and the managers of these businesses to say, well, look, you know, like focus on driving towards profitability, reduce your cash burn. And in some cases, that's meant that, you know, re- revenue growth, therefore, is slower. Great example would be Klarna. Klarna's driving towards profitability because it is significantly improving it's it's credit performance, so i.e. payment is reducing. One way of doing that is so to... it's being more stringent is, about lending. It's being more stringent. Money to and customers. That's exactly it. So it's tightening the, the, the underwriting standards, which therefore naturally means that the revenue growth slows. Mm. That doesn't mean that the revenue growth can't come back next year or the year after once you, know, you turn the tap back on. That weighted 46% revenue growth, you can say, you know, that comes as now... I mean, this might take a bit of debunking, but you know, so 84% of the portfolio is either profitable today yeah. 
or, or is funded to a point where you think it can reach profitability. Yeah, that's right. So you're saying yeah. you're reaching profitability while maintaining pretty yeah. good growth. If you actually look at how the numbers have evolved over the last you know, 12 months or so, a year ago, 42% of the portfolio was profitable or funded to profitability. 42% has gone to 84. You know, we, mm-hmm. We've doubled it. And that's because we did invest in Klarna. We, you know, they, they did that following round last year and yeah. you know, WeFox have raised more money. Um, you know, Stalin actually raised money in April 2022. These companies have done a lot in the last 12 months and they've carried on growing and the balance sheets are in great shape. Plan are demonstrating that they are driving towards profitability. And I think mm-hmm. based on their Q1 um, performance, we feel very confident that they're going to drive into profitability in the second half of the year. Let's discuss Starlink a bit. You know, it's your second biggest holding uh, and Jupiter, w- which you work for as well as running Chrysalis, came under some fire. Um, over it. Can you reassure investors that that's all been resolved? We went through the process last year where we sold Starling from the Jupiter Omlended funds and that was announced in February. And that sale was partly to Chrysalis itself, right? So the actual process in terms of the lead investor wasn't Chrysalis. So it it was another investor uh, that led the round and set the valuation and and Chrysalis was simply a follower. This terminology about lead investor and followers. So that that kind of reduces the potential of a conflict of interest because you didn't set the valuation yourself. No, Chrysalis didn't set the valuation. The the valuation came out of an independent process. And the reality is it just reflects different timescales. There was a requirement to sell from those open-ended funds. Chrysalis, by definition, is more permanence to the capital. So I was able to take a longer term um, view. So I don't think people should be concerned that you know some funds were selling and one fund was buying. Does that mean that you don't like Stalin as an investment? Like, you know, that's not true. It just simply reflected the liquidity, you know, the liquidity yeah. requirements. Starling's founder and and share and also significant shareholder and Bowden stepped down as CEO this month. It's been reported that was partly due to disagreement with other investors about that transaction, what can you say about that? Firstly, so like, don't, don't believe everything that you read. If you actually look at Starling, you know, mm. how that business has grown. When we first invested in the early part of 2019, mm. you know, Starling probably generated a few tens of millions of pounds of revenue. Um, it was you know, reasonably loss-making. The potential was always there for this to be a profitable business. And that, that's what we invested in. You know, every investment that we've made, we've always asked ourselves the question, are there positive unit economics in this business? that at scale means that the business will be profitable. Mm-hmm. And, and Starling you know, ticked all of those boxes. So the reality is the business grew very quickly um, just before the pandemic. And I think it was January, February 2020, Starling went through a billion pounds of deposits. And as you saw in the results, they just announced you know, that number, it's you know, 10, 11 billion. And it's so, also lent just under 5 billion, right? Yeah, yeah. And so obviously lending is now a bigger um, feature of the business. That's basically transformed the economics. So if you look at the, the, the 12 months ended March 23, they announced that they made 195 million pounds of profit. I think Anne you know, looked, looked at the business and looked at the difficulty of being I suppose a founder and a chief executive and a, and a shareholder, managing that probably becomes tougher you know, as the business grows and just mm-hmm. gets bigger. So um, I think Anne made that kind of decision that she wanted to focus on a shareholder role. Quick word on brand tech. You, you've already mentioned it. It, ma- it makes up uh, just over 12% of the portfolio. You, you could it an excellent IPO candidate. Is that yeah. where your kind of immediate hopes lie for a, a realisation? I think we've got a number of candidates, okay. if I'm honest. So... Look, I think we've got to we've got to say with Brand Tech, this is a business that has been you know like executing M and A basically. So mm. yeah, so I would say in terms of timeline, you know, eighteen months or two years, you know, 
could they IPO in that time frame? Absolutely. Doesn't mean they will, by the way. I mean, I don't have any particular insight as to whether they will or not. In terms of um, the basic characteristics of the business, billion dollar plus of pro forma revenue, very, very profitable, growing strongly, digital business, you know, it, it just has, it just ticks all the boxes, right, for an IPO. It's not the only candidate, though. You know, mm. we talked, we just mentioned Starling, but Starling, again, you know, a very profitable business, you know, could that IPO? Yeah, and I, I think in our own mind, in terms of the criteria that I think a company needs to have for an IPO, I think being profitable, I think, is bare minimum, right? It's like, yeah. you know, I think the days of loss-making companies IPO in, I, I just think the market will struggle. If you look at those four names, you know, Klarna, Brandtech, WeFox, Starling, it's over 50% of the NAV, right, of the portfolio right there. We don't know the exact timing of an IPO, but these businesses either have the characteristics today... They've got the ingredients. ...or will soon have the ingredients that you know, IPO becomes very, very possible. In the interim results, there was confirmation of a continuation vote yeah. early next year. There was quite a lot of messaging around that, that, you know, the options could be either a wind-up or, or a continuation, as is, or, or something where, you know, Chrysalis continues, but there's kind of more guarantees to, to shareholders over yeah. when you can sell assets, mm. what, what might happen. Is that right? The portfolio managers have never been averse to, to capital returns, giving capital mm. back. We told people when we launched Chrysalis, we kind of felt maybe three to four years was a plausible time scale for many of these businesses to IPO. We're there now, but the markets are shut. And I think everyone understands that IPO and businesses in a difficult market environment probably isn't the most it's counterproductive. It's, it's just counterproductive. We do have these later stage assets that could IPO, right? And so you're just waiting for the markets and you're waiting for your timing. So I think the reality is having that conversation with shareholders to understand what they think is the um, appropriate you know, distribution mechanism, I think is, is helpful to us. The reality is if you can create a vehicle that can give you a 20 to 25% you know, IRR, that IRR is like growing as well really, really strongly, and you can give a significant portion of that IRR back to investors, that becomes something that I think anyway is highly compelling the message from from you and nick williamson is you know we're totally committed to this strategy yeah we, we want to keep going you know we want to make new investments in the future I, I understand right when you have investments that are less successful of course they they do, mm. do generate a lot of commentary but the reality is what we are trying to do is, is businesses like uh, ways or transfer ways that obviously changes the name to ways mm. that's that is the absolute i think i used the words in the previous statement it's the exemplar of what we're trying to do and when we invested in ways Less than £100 million pounds, um, of revenue uh, was about break-even. So it just got to that scale where it was tipping into profitability. And um, and you look at the numbers now, right? I mean, like we're, it's got to be over a billion of revenue and, you know, 25% EBITDA margin. And it's grown 25 30%. Some years it's grown faster. And, you know, it's still has a relatively small market share. Yeah. And it's like, if you can find businesses like that, and I think when we first invested in Waze, you know, compared to the current share price or market cap today and haven't raised any primary capital since, it's been five, six X. I think we always say when we launched Chrysalis, you know, we weren't going to get everything right. We were going to have some investments that just didn't work out. But it's the classic barbell. At most, right, if you invest capital into a company, at most, you know, you can lose all of that capital, right? And so you lose, you know, one times your invested capital. But if you can find a number of stocks and give you five, six, seven, eight times returns, you know, I have two, if I have two of them or three of them and I have 
three of the ones that don't quite work out and hope we don't lose all our money and we can get some money back. The reality is the overall return is, go is going to be phenomenally good. Well, thanks very much, Richard. I think that's a good note to, to finish on. So yeah, yeah, thanks very much for coming in today. Yeah, thank you.